We begin this episode on the island of Cyprus, which is located in the far eastern corner of the Mediterranean near Turkey. When Zeus and the Olympians roamed the earth, the island had no names, but it was always known as the birthplace of the love goddess Aphrodite. Each year, a famous festival was held in her honor. As our episode begins, the island is ruled by King Pygmalion. He was unusually talented and a devotee of Aphrodite. He was also renowned for his rule of law and wisdom and for his exceptional skill as a sculptor. And he had a quirk, I should mention. He was intimidated by women. In his youth, he had encountered women in his kingdom known as the Propoites. These women had dared to claim that Aphrodite was not divine. Aphrodite, in her fury, turned them into the world's first prostitutes. The king saw them once and was discomforted. As a result, he mistrusted all females and for years lived alone. But all of that changed when he sculpted a statue of a beautiful woman. This is episode 41 of Garner's Greek Mythology. We have listeners from 159 countries, so welcome to everyone wherever you are. I'm your host, mythologist Patrick Garner. Some of these stories about the gods have been told for thousands of years, but now there are new stories that are as compelling. If you haven't already done so, check out my books about the gods in the contemporary world. They're part of the Winnowing Trilogy. You can and should read about them and about this podcast at patrickgarnerbooks.com. Do it when you're finished listening. And as always, this podcast focuses on one thing. Greek gods, of course. They, like you, are here now. As you'll see, King Pygmalion fell in love with his creation, but he also began the tradition of male artists trying to transform women into an imaginary ideal. What he started rippled through the art world and continues to this day. Sculptures, plays, books, and movies, all artists drew inspiration from the magic that happened when he, well, I'll explain. For months, he shaped his female statue from ivory. The sculpture slowly took form. Everyone who saw it marveled. All said that the young woman he created was more beautiful than any woman alive. Pygmalion himself was taken aback at his creation. He had little interest in women, yet suddenly he had created a masterpiece. Even stranger... Pygmalion fell in love with his own statue. He began to obsess over it. Its beauty filled his mind. According to the ancient writer Hesiod, the king lavished it with gifts that would have pleased any young woman. He hung gold pendants off her neck and dressed her in silk robes. He even went to the extent of making her a bed. Every night he would lay her down and put her head on a fine pillow, 
kissing her cheeks and muttering promises that he knew could never come true. After all, she was nothing more than a statue, however realistic she might appear. When the ancient festival of Aphrodite was held on the island, the king made many rich offerings at the goddess's altar. Secretly, he prayed that Aphrodite might find him a bride who would be, quoting the ancient writer Ovid, the living likeness of my ivory girl. Although invisible to mortal eyes, the goddess was present at her celebration. There she heard the king's prayers. She knew instantly that he didn't seek just any bride. No, his prayers were that the goddess breathed life into his creation. Touched by his sincerity, the goddess decided to grant his wish. When he returned home and kissed the statue's lips, he found them to be warm. Shocked, he stroked the ivory arms and whispered soft words of love into the statue's ears. As he lavished more and more attention on the sculpture, it seemed to soften to his touch. Could it be true? He imagined he saw her blink and thought for a moment that she had sighed happily. As he slipped his arms around her waist to hold her close, she reciprocated, putting her hands on his neck. Taken aback and shocked at his apparent good fortune, Pygmalion said, Are you alive? His ivory girl smiled, saying, Alive and yours forever, my king. As she stepped down from the base that had held her in place, she took his hand and said sweetly, But you must marry me, dear man. Aphrodite had granted his wish, and so Pygmalion in turn granted his ivory girl's request. The two were united in marriage. His bride's name was Galatea, which meant one who is milk white, no doubt, in recognition of the ivory's color. She bore the king two children, a daughter and a son. They lived a long and happy life together. In his devotion to Aphrodite, the son grew up to build her the greatest temple in the ancient world, acknowledging that he would never have been born had it not been for the goddess. Situated on the western point of the island and looking over the vast sea, its ruins are being excavated even now. The story of the statue coming to life spread through the ancient world, and artists and writers in every century have used the tale for inspiration. You may remember the story of Daedalus, the architect and inventor who created the labyrinth on Crete to house the Minotaur, and the wings held together by wax he created for his son Icarus. You may not know that Daedalus also made statues that could talk. The story is that he used quicksilver, or what we call mercury, to install a voice in their throats. Thus, his mechanical beings were transformed into conversationalists, amazing those around him when they held discussions with nobility. 
The Olympic god Hephaestus created robots as laborers for his workshops. The Greeks called them automata. Some of them were women who helped him at his forge. Others were bronze helpers of tremendous strength. The largest of these was called Talos. Talos was created at Zeus's request to protect King Minos on the island of Crete. Talos was humanoid in appearance, but was, in effect, a massive guard dog, always on the watch. He circled Crete three times a day at high speed along the sea's edge. His laser-like eyes were always on the lookout for invaders. If Talos saw enemy ships approach, he'd hurl giant rocks at them. This worked well until the famous Jason and the Argonauts came to Crete. On board that ship was Jason's lover, Medea, the witch who used her magic to destroy the bronze man. In this endeavor, she had backup from twin divinities named the Dioscori. By the time the battle ended, the robot lay in pieces on the beach. It's said that for years afterwards... The pile of bronze that had once been the mighty Talos lay there in the waves and sand. The stories of living beings created from bronze, ivory, or clay go on and on. You've heard of Pandora. Do you remember the story of Pandora's box? She was a beautiful woman who came into the world bearing a box or jar filled with nightmares. Pathos, plague, and every other torment to sully life was inside. Basically, life for mankind was good until she removed the top. Pandora was crafted at Zeus's request by Hephaestus, the same god who had created the bronze Talos. Pandora's origin story goes back to Prometheus, the titan who violated Zeus's order not to give mankind fire. When Prometheus did so, Zeus punished him and ordered Hephaestus to use clay to create the first mortal woman. The Greek writer Hesiod explains that the creation of woman ended the so-called golden era on Earth. Pandora was created to punish all of mankind, and thus began the ills and travails of the world. Thousands of years later, the Bible used the same basic story, but substituted the person of Eve for Pandora. Both women triggered waves of bad fortune for the men who encountered them. As the 20th century English poet Robert Graves notes, the story is not just a myth, but a, an anti-feminist fable. Pygmalion's Galatea brought joy. Pandora and Eve turned the story upside down by introducing suffering upon mankind. Still, the tales of Pygmalion-like beings made from clay and metal go on. For another ancient and dreadful story, we shift to Sparta. There, around 200 B.C., a king named Nebus 
invented a torture device that looked amazingly like his wife. Her name was Agapea, and he named the device the Iron Agapea. It was used to collect money from delinquent citizens. Those who failed to pay their taxes were sent to supposedly deal with his wife. They met in a back room with what appeared to be the real Opega. She sat in a chair with her arms open. When the miscreants went to hug her, their touch triggered a switch, and her iron arms closed around them. The device's limbs and hands, strong enough to crush a victim, were covered in needle-like nails. From a hidden room, Nevis controlled the device, intensifying the torture until his victims each agreed to pay a tribute. The king ruled 15 years, and as you can imagine, when his reign ended, the device was thrown out with the king. Throughout history, Aphrodite's gift to Pygmalion has continued to enthrall writers and artists. Around 1610, William Shakespeare toyed with the theme in a play called The Winner's Tale. In it, the king of Sicily is given a statue of his dead wife. The king has mourned her for months. His friends worry about him. The sculpture is extremely lifelike. Everyone is amazed at his beauty. The king is distraught at the gift as it reminds him too much of his lost wife. Yet suddenly as he mourns, the statue shows signs of vitality. And a dramatic, almost comedic flourish steps off its stand and into his arms. Other examples? More than 300 years later, another English playwright, George Bernard Shaw, wrote a play that he unblushingly called Pygmalion. In it, we meet a professor of phonetics named Henry Higgins, who, like King Pygmalion, is uncomfortable around women. A flower girl named Eliza becomes the surrogate for Pygmalion's ivory statue. She speaks like a gutter snipe. Higgins bets his friend, Colonel Pickering, that he can transform her in a matter of months. Into what? Pickering asks. Why, into a princess, Higgins replies. Into a girl who will fool even nobility. Higgins wins the bets. The play was turned into a popular Hollywood movie in the late 1930s, and then again in 1964, into the wildly successful musical My Fair Lady. There are still other modern versions of this ancient theme, some which may surprise you. The 2004 Clint Eastwood film Million Dollar Baby turns Hilary Swank into a prize fighter. In the 1997 film Annie Hall, Woody Allen attempts to change Annie into his own image, but she refuses to comply. Another example is The Phantom of the Opera. In it, The Phantom privately tutors an obscure singer, demanding that she be given lead roles and turning her into a star. Another film, Pretty Woman, once again features a man who believes he can transform a woman. In a final example, there's a strange and endearing film called 
Lars and the Real Girl, in which an autistic man has a relationship with a life-size doll. Of course, I haven't mentioned Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella. These children's stories are also about sudden transformation at the hand of a male. As we've seen, countless stories owe their origin to Pygmalion. And to a creator, there's nothing more satisfying or magical than seeing one's creation come to life. Join me for the next episode of Garner's Greek Mythology. If you like what you hear and you're listening from either iTunes or Spotify, leave me four or five stars. Your opinion matters. Also, be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com. It's all about your favorite Greek gods, the discussion of this podcast, and about my three novels. If you prefer to listen, after all, you are listening to a podcast. You can get my audible book, Homo Divinitus, at Amazon or Audible. Thanks for listening. This is your host, Patrick Garner.